This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David James Gonzalez, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Michelle Tellez, author of Border Women and the Community of Maclovio Rojas, Autonomy in the Spaces of Neoliberal Neglect, published by the University of Arizona Press in 2021. I love the title, by the way. I just have to shout that out real quick. <laughs> Michelle Tellez is an associate professor uh, in the Department of Mexican-American Studies at the University of Arizona. She writes about transnational community formations, Chicana feminism, and gendered migration. A founding member of the Chicana Motherwork Collective, the Arizona Sonjarocho Collective, and the Binational Arts Residences Project, Tellez has a long history in grassroots organizing projects and community-based arts and performance. She co-edited the Chicana Mother Work Anthology, Porque Sin Madres No Hay Revolución, also published by the University of Arizona Press. That was published back in 2019. And uh, we, we covered the book on uh, the New Books Network. So if you look back in our archives, just search Chicana Mother Work uh, Anthology and it'll pull up. We, I think we had that interview back in August of 2019. So I'm thrilled to have you back with us, Michelle. Welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Thank you, DJ, for having me, for doing this labor. Really, I think it sounds like a labor of love that you are promoting reading and, you know, um, doing this show where we get to have these really cool conversations and learn from one another. So just really, I want to say, acknowledge that work that you've been doing um, and then just say thank you for, for having me. Oh, thank you. That's really generous. Um, it's um, it, it as you mentioned, like your work. This is a labor of love. Definitely, we have tremendous scholarship, and today we get to talk about your book, which I, uh, as I mentioned to you before, I started reading it, and I couldn't put it down. Um, it's uh, I love reading outside of my field, which this is, but it's it's. I just found so much connections, and uh, you know, I'm in the middle of writing my book monograph, I just had so many notes for things like that you're inspiring me and uh, connections that I'm making with the, the stuff that I do. So so it's uh, it's certainly a blessing and privilege for me uh, to, to be with scholars like yourself and uh, and to share your work with our community because it deserves it. So, Yeah, and I want to hear about those points of connection if we get a chance to, to think through those together today. Definitely, definitely. Well, let's begin by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, because I think last time we had you on, we had you do a little bit, but it was uh, we had you along with some of your co-editors. So now this is just all about you. So tell oh. us about yourself. 
<laughs> okay. Um, so I am from, I grew up along the San Diego Tijuana border. Um, and my mother is from a small town in Mexico in the state of Jalisco. It's called Tomatlan. And my father is from a, um, well, he's from Chicago, born and raised, but his family was from Jalisco as well. So we're Jalisciense, like through and through. And in Toma, I think I really still feel in a bit, a bit matrilineal in my in my raising because I was so close to my family in Tomatlan. And so I'd really feel rooted there. We've been there for generations. And of course, um, my father and my mother um, raised us in San Diego. They met there. They've both passed on now. Um, and, you know, I think that from them, I just really sort of experienced what became my identity of this like transnational, transfronteriza, Chicana, you know. Um, so being really firmly rooted in in our place of origin, but also because my father was a musician, um, you know, he grew up around Italianos, Puerto Ricans in Chicago at the turn of, you know, really he was born in 1929. So I was the youngest of five. So you can imagine, you know, my father was much older, um, but I learned so much because of that. And he was a musician, like he played salsa in the fifties with Tito Puente and Desi Arnaz and moved to California as a musician to play in LA at the Palladium. And so I say all this because, you know, I, I'm both like this small town, you know, I have these roots in this very, very small pueblo. Um, and then also like this big city dad, you know, and, and all of that, you know, you know, really like gave me, I, I, it's like an aperture into uh, multiple worlds and experiences and what like um, Francis Aparicio calls like intra-Latinidad, you know? Um, and so <clears throat> I, because I was raised along the border, I mean, I lived in a little neighborhood that they used to call little TJ because, you know, it was like a diminutive of, of Tijuana. And what that meant was that, you know, we were all Mexicanos, but we were surrounded by Navy housing. So there was a lot of racial tension. Right. And I experienced it. I was a kid. I didn't know any different. But, you know, all the racial epithets that were both gendered and racialized, you know, um, were thrown at me as a young kid. And I remember them and I know how that felt. Um, and so I think that early lens and that those early experiences, when I acquired the language in my first Chicano, Chicano Studies class at UCLA, it gave me the language to understand those experiences, right? And and as soon as that like was awakened in me, there was no going back. You know, it was like once I understood um, my 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 own relationship to you know historical. Um, political and social context. It was like I tr- I needed to figure out how to how to make it better for myself or those that come after me or my community, and that kind of like threw me into both student activism, community organizing, and that was my trajectory. You know, for many years, I was also you know um, an educator in Chula Vista. When after I graduated from college, I did um, elementary school teaching as a as a bilingual edu- edu- uh, bilingual elementary school teacher. And, um, and I think that I was also really frustrated at the limitations that I had as a teacher in a neighborhood where parents didn't have a lot of voice and we tried to organize with parents or I tried to organize with parents and they did a tremendous work, but you know, it was, it was just a tough moment, right? Right in the nineties, right when, you know, Prop 187, Prop 227, um, Prop 209, right? And so there's, you know, these all of these like policies and, and that were limiting what we could do in the classroom. Um, and so that's when I would decide to go to graduate school. 
And in graduate school, I, I, you know, wanted to, I actually wanted to teach teachers. That's what my goal was originally. I wanted to go to graduate school, get my PhD in education, and then go back and teach teachers how to include radical pedagogy, critical theory, you know, and really promote this Farian, you know, notion of, of education. Um, but my research, I guess, just took me towards a more interdisciplinary path and, um, and it's kind of come full circle, right? Because I came back to the place that I'm from, which is what this book is about. Um, uh, and so in some ways, you know, my journey has always been, you know, really tethered to my place of origin. Um, even if I didn't know that that's what was happening. Right. Um, so yeah, so that's a little bit about me and I, and I'll just also add that, uh, early on, I learned about, and I, and I write about this a little bit in the book, but I learned about this notion of autonomy through different uh, movements that I was adjacent to or formed part of or was in support of, like, you know, El Movimiento Autónomo de Madrid, because I lived in Spain for a bit, and then, you know, of course, the Zapatista movement. And so this notion of autonomy really was something that, like, drew me in as an organizing model, right? Um, and... And I think that when I came to the community in Maclovio Rojas, through those networks, you know, those community organizing networks of autonomy, um, it just all kind of came together. Like, oh, this, this, I, I can't believe. I mean, literally, Maclovio Rojas is like five miles from the line, the U.S.-Mexico border in Otay. Now, there's no crossing point in there, so you have to kind of drive either through Tijuana or through Otay, but it's it's literally over the border right and so what does that mean for the region and you know and how does that inspire um other projects you know and so anyway so that's a little bit how i came to the project and a bit about myself yeah i i you know you providing that you know intro also and, and we i think we've made this connection before you know because i spent much of my childhood in in chula vista too um my dad, in fact, was a was a principal in the Chula Vista Elementary School District. I think we messaged about this a while back. Yeah, I was. Um, I, was I thought for a second that your dad might have been my principal. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember thinking that. I think you got you just missed each other. Like he right. transferred to a different yeah, school we right when you school. went to yeah. the school he was at. Um, but I'm also thinking about you know the way that you're thinking about this region, right? And this you know broader, uh, you know it's it's the broader borderlands, but very specific. I mean, this is you know San Diego, Tijuana, that kind of broad region going down to into Tecate, and but as a whole region, you know, and I keep emphasizing that because you know we moved to Chichula Vista when I was 10 years old. I was born in Oxnard, and and we moved down at that around that time. And we lived on the east side uh, of Chula Vista, right? Much more middle class, much more white, and and uh, and, and a lot of Filipinos went to this school. A lot of you mentioned the Navy, right? You mentioned, you know, I mean, San Diego's a, a, definitely a military town in that way. But um, what, you know, like you, I mean, my eyes didn't become open to this region in this world. I think until really I, I went to college because I was sheltered from that in many ways. I mean, my parents were much engaged in bilingual communities and teaching there. Uh, and that was on the West side, right. Of, of Chula Vista and, and South San Diego. That's where they did all their teaching and work. And so I would go into that, you know, kind of world in that space, but it wasn't my world. You know, it wasn't, you know, I didn't really realize that even though we would go down to Tijuana and we had family in South Tijuana that we'd go and visit every now and then you know, as a kid, of course, I just, for me, 
coming from middle class privilege uh, and coming being raised in the the eastern side, the east side of Chula Vista of those suburbs, you know, it was I never, you know, I, I just never to me it never seemed like a connected region, right? And even though it was, and that's what I love about your book, it it is raising these these tremendous questions, you know. Yes, this community of Macalavia Rojas is just five miles away from the border. I grew up just a few miles away from the, this border, and and yet, you know. The spaces can be just so different, right, uh, as you're just within a city, across a border, and you're dealing with all of this, right? So that's what I love. It's my intro to try to get into talk. Tell us more about how you came to this this project. Um, yeah. No, thanks for that. You know, I think it's just fascinating um, that we have that shared history, you know, and really, really cool. Um yeah, and I think this the, the San Diego Tijuana border region is super unique because, well, I mean, all all points of connection along that two thousand mile long stretch are is are unique, of course. But you know, if you go into like Ciudad Juarez and El Paso or Nogales, Nogales or you know Douglas, Agua Prieta, right? You um, there, there's a different sense of the border because you literally can like see the border and like you know. Um, and the, the connection is, is clear. And there's other dynamics, of course, in different historical contexts. But the San Diego-Tijuana border, what I found interesting growing up is that, like, TJ was always there. Like, TJ, for me, we used to cross the border on Sundays and go grocery shopping at Comercial Mexicana um, because it was cheaper in the 80s to do that, right? This is before NAFTA, of course. And we would go get, you know, I always joke with my students, I used to eat fruity loopies, not fruit loops, because that's what we bought, you know. And um, and then, you know, hang out in Tijuana for the day with our family that lived there as well. And then came back. Um, so I like knew of Tijuana as a place of family, you know. Um, and some and, and it's funny because I felt like my family in Tijuana was a little bit richer, you know, like the the fresas of Tijuana. And so for me, Tijuana was like, oh, it's like all these rich people <laughs> live there, like when I was a kid, you know. And right. and um and then like sitting in the line for hours just to get back across, you know. Anyways, I say all that because you know, like that was a part of my, my life. And then, but what people around me knew as TJ, especially as I got older, like revolution, like the party place, like, you know, my, my friends who had no connection to Mexico would just be like, oh, that's good part. You know what I mean? It was like this whole different understanding of what Tijuana was. Now, San Diego city itself actually sort of, I, the way I analyze it is that it sort of removes itself as a border city, you know, it doesn't necessarily right. no, totally. mark itself yeah. as a border city, right? Like it sort of relegates it. And of course it is San Isidro that is directly across from Tijuana. Right. Um, but it's San Diego County. And, and then of course it's San Isidro and then Chula Vista and then San Diego city proper, um, and so I, I find that super interesting, right? Because it's, and, and even if like you look at the physicality of the border along Tijuana and San Diego, um, you know, you see Tijuana, Playas de Tijuana, like literally built up to the border, right? And then on the San Diego side, we have Brown, you know, field, uh, Border State Field Park and 
Um, and it's, it's like, there's, there's little places where you can actually feel like, oh yeah, the border's right here and we're on this side, right? There's not like, it's not like the city is built up to that place. And there was a time right, in the right. 90s when, you know, when we were doing organizing work around like maquiladora support networks and, and Zapatista, like there was a Frente Zapatista in Tijuana, um, we would do a, like, uh, binational concerts like or binational yoga or binational meetings and there would be people on the san diego side and then people on the tijuana side and you could like exchange and look at each other well because of the third border wall and you know the the further enforcement post 9-11 i mean all that stuff really stopped even there might there may be a few events that happen now like the border fandango that happens um, but it's like, you have to get permissions and you can only be there for 30 minutes. And, you know, there's all these things, whereas, you know, before it was, there was definitely a little bit more interaction, but it was like plant, you know, you had to go there. It wasn't like you were, you know, you look like in, in Nogales, Arizona, you could like look over and be like, Oh, you know, let me talk to my neighbor. Although because of the third border wall, again, that has been shifting over time. Nonetheless, I think that those kind of symbolic, um, uh, you know, interact or is the uh, symbolic, you know, detachments um, really shape how people understand the U.S.-Mexico border in that region. I mean, and we have to remember, too, like I said earlier, the 90s was marked by a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, there were these like light up the border rallies in the early 90s, right, that they were basically, you know, sh- you know shining a light into Tijuana, like, don't come into the U.S. Like, we don't want you here, right? And and so all of this really, I think, shapes even, like, social interactions that trickle down to me, a little chicanita at Baby Terrace Elementary School being called all these names, and I had no idea why, or being, getting put into ESL classes when my father barely spoke Spanish, you know? And so I grew up bilingual. I grew up speaking Spanish to my mother and English to my father. And so I didn't need to be put in there, but because of what I looked like and what my last name was, you know, um, that that's sort of what happened. That's how I was tracked, you know? Um, and, uh, and so I think because of the uniqueness of this entire region, what I'm trying to argue or what I'm trying to demonstrate, um, is that, uh, we need to think about the region not just as a place that people pass through or that, you know, or that people are trying to get across and that there's not just this, you know, um, uh, it's not just this, this site of contention, right? It's also a place where people live and make community and figure out life and have cultural exchange and have familial exchange, right? And and so that's one of the arguments that I tried to demonstrate and to say that through this community, we can see how these unique border dynamics, you know, um, like through that confluence, you know, created this opportunity for something like Maclovio Rojas to emerge, of course, out of the ingenuity of, of the organizers, right? So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was a long answer. No, but that's great. And it, it makes me feel a little better. <laughs> <laughs> that I just got because I raised to you know I got to adulthood I'm like I mean yeah I always knew Tijuana was there because we went there a lot right but again the connections and I love the connections that you're you're making that that are so much tied to our our own individual subjectivities our families our lived experiences 
but that it's been very intentional, right, through decades of, of you know, economic policy, right, um, you know, immigration policies, uh, of course, I mean, you mentioned NAFTA and, you know, the the uh, militarization of the border that, that starts happening, like, right when my family moves there. Like, I mean, that separateness is intentional, it, it, right? It, it's been, those policies have meant to kind of sever ties in order to serve global capital, right? Uh, it's okay to transfer large sums of money and, and um, you know, commodities and all this and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, waiting for hours to cross the border, right? It's, it's, it's been, you know, it's been that way for, for decades, you know, I mean, we were, again, we were going in the early nineties and late eighties and early nineties. And, and I just remember that falling asleep, right? When we get in line to come back across and then being woken up so we could say our citizenship status, right? And and all that. But that all of that was intentional, right? To break up, you know, families, communities, culture. Um, well, and it's and, uh, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, when I was a teacher in Chula Vista, my, um, I lived in Tijuana for a while because, so this is, you know, the late 90s and, um, and, well, number one, it was, you know, uh, teachers don't make a whole lot of money. <laughs> and so it was a little bit cheaper to live in Tijuana, but it was also feasible to do so, right? So, like, uh-huh. my sister lived in Tijuana, and I could, you know, live in Tijuana. And she was a teacher, too. At that time, I want to say she was at Mission Bay High, which is, like, even further north. I was yeah, wow, that's too. a commute. Yeah. But, I mean, it wasn't um, – you know, it was a commute, but it was like the border wasn't the issue. Like you could get, I I remember, this is so nuts. I remember leaving my house in Tijuana, say at, at seven o'clock because the mileage is very small, right? And so it's uh-huh. really the border rate, but I'd get to the border, cross and be at work by 7.30, you know? And, and that just doesn't, that doesn't happen anymore, you know, at yeah, all. Yeah, no, I know. Like now that sounds impossible. There's no, <laughs> There's no way. No way. No way. And vice yeah. versa. You like, I knew several people living in Chula Vista that, that worked uh, for corporations that now I understand are these maquilas that are being built in the late 80s and 90s. And these are these were actually some of them were like white folk I went to church with. And they were going down there. And they were the ones running them. Right. Um, like uh, anyways. But 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 yeah. So you had that flow. Right. Mm-hmm. Of, of labor going both ways. Absolutely. Um, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. And we think about like what. You know, but what kind, so we know that like eventually um, because of these global economic policies, we started seeing how capital can cross, um, mm-hmm. you know, freely, but then of course people can't. And so what, who's, what persons and are allowed to cross and who, and what persons are not allowed to cross and like who is deemed valuable and who is seen as disposable in that crossing experience. Right. And so that's, I think, another right. layer to it. And so that's a big part of the beginning of your your book, right? The the conditions that set the stage, if you will, for a community and for communities like Maclovio Rojas to to form these autonomous communities. So tell us more about that, about both the conditions and and the beginnings of Maclovio Rojas. I mean, how? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so. So let me just say this because people may not know. So Maclovio Rojas is a community that is about 197 hectares. It has um, it started with 25 families. It now has up to 12,000 families living there. Um, 12,000. No, that's not right. Did I say that? 1,200. <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking in Spanish. Um, and, um, and so... 
the community was formed in 1988, um, and it was because 25 families decided that they wanted to create a home for themselves, you know, and we know that urban popular movements and land settlements in the border region are are common and colonias on the U.S. side also exist in this, this kind of way. Right. Sort of like precarious housing um, and people make sh- you know, do makeshift homes um, so because they need a place to, to live. And so out of this uh, sort of history, long history in Baja California and in northern Mexico, you know, so the families... Um, uh, settled basically on these on these what they called vacant lands, national lands, in this region between what is the city of Tecate and the city of Tijuana, um, and you know we have to think about it also in terms of the confluence of so many issues. So the the push north um, from the interior of Mexico that really starts. Um, after the decline of like the peso in 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 Mexico, after you know various economic crises, um, and then of course with the privatization of lands of national lands, you see you know this push forward of um, communities and of peoples who from the interior of Mexico really um, could no longer sustain their families in in the ways that they had maybe for generations, right? And so. And sometimes they want to go to the U.S., you know, um, and sometimes they want to come to the Maquilas, right? Because they hear that, you know, I had a um, in another project that was uh, interviewing Maquiladora workers, and one of them said, you know, they tell us that the the st- streets are paved of gold, you know, and you don't know any different, and so you make the trek north, and um, and so for those who don't cross the border, they end up in these northern, you know, Mexican border cities, and. Uh, and these cities are not equipped, don't have this infrastructure to support the families that that then are born from these um, migration patterns. So you have um, no no schooling, you know, no not enough health resources, not enough homes for certain. Um, and so I think with with those with with you know that confluence of, of circumstances, these initial families who were also organizers with SUOC, which was like an, an agricultural workers union. Um, and who, so, so they already, they already knew, you know, their rights as, as Mexican citizens. Um, they knew that they could organize, they had the agency to organize, right. Um, and to create this land settlement. Um, and so, uh, so that, that's when Maclovio Rojas was born in 1988. Now, let me also just quickly say that Maclovio Rojas there's a man named Maclovio Rojas, and Maclovio Rojas, the man, was a Mixteco um, uh, farm worker from Oaxaca who comes to Baja California in the early '80s um, and was a uh, became a, you know an organizer really for those tomato pickers in the region because he realized that their working conditions were unsafe when and um, their wages. Uh, were a disgrace, and so he started organizing uh, with the support of Siwak, and uh, and he was killed for his organizing efforts by one of the growers. Right? They didn't want people organizing, and so because, like I said, those original families were connected to this larger um, union of agricultural worker organizing, um, they named this settlement after him, Maclovio Rojas. So that's where there's Maclovio Rojas, the community, and Maclovio Rojas, the man. 
Um, and so when those first 25 families settled, they were doing it with the intention of acquiring titles to their land. Um, and, you know, it's it's a little bit complicated, but the agrarian reform based on the Mexican Revolution and the Constitution of 1917 allowed for uh, landless, you know, workers, families, uh, campesinos to basically settle on these vacant lands um, and if they were productive on it, you know, within five years, within five to 10 years, depending on their circumstances, they were able to acquire those t- land titles and be, and, and become owners of those land, you know, of that land and, and, and use it as a way to sustain their families. And so 1988, you would figure that in five years, um, uh, when they applied through the agrarian reform that Maclavio Rojas would be, um, given their land titles and they were denied in the first five years. So they waited for the 10-year period. They were denied again. And what we have to note is that in 1993, the president at the time in Mexico, Salinas de Gortari, had already signed into an agreement, the, uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement, right? Um, which meant that the lands in which Maclovio Rojas was being created, they became very valuable to natural, uh, multinational corporations, right? Because even if you go there today, um, you see the buildup of these, they call them these like parks, right? These maquiladora parks, right? And you have many corporations that set up shop there and they bring a lot of revenue to the region, um, not to the workers, of course. And so the state, you know, of Baja California wanted Maclovio Rojas out. The national government wasn't going to do anything to support this this community. Um, and so therein begins the litigation and the and the battle between these residents who simply wanted to find a you know a place to call home and the multinational corporations, the nation state, the state of Baja California, right? And so um that's how the struggle begins. And um when the Zapatista movement emerges in 1994, um, I think in some ways, uh, some of the organizers, the lead organizers, um, saw themselves reflected in that struggle. Different, right? Because you have there in, in Chiapas, you have generations of indigenous communities who have, who are, that, that those are their um communities and, and land of origin, right? And here you have, because of these economic policies that have forced a migration north, you know, you have people who come from different regions in Mexico and are making home in a brand new place, but yet they have the right to do that. And and so that's something that's really interesting in Maclovio Rojas, right? Because they see themselves as, as um, Maclovianos, that's sort of like what I call their community citizenship, but then they also recognize themselves as Mexican citizens who have the right, you know, to call on the Mexican constitution um, uh, to settle on these lands. And I forgot to say that what happened when Salinas de Gortari signs in NAFTA, he changes the Article 27 in the constitution, which allowed for these landless campesinos to settle on these lands, right? Uh, and so that paved the way for the privatization of lands. And so this is also at the at the heart of the struggle of Maclovio Rojas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level 
today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, so I mean, they're just basically, I mean, caught right in the crux of, right, the, the proliferation of neoliberal policies, right? I mean, it's obviously a decade-long process, but I mean, the moment when they're petitioning, right, is when these key massive, uh, right, hemispheric uh, trade agreements are occurring, uh, and they're they're essentially caught right in the middle of it, right? Yep, yep, exactly. That's exactly what, right. And that's what's so interesting, right? And that they have been able to persevere despite, you know, them being, you know, against all odds, right? Um, And and I think this is how I came up with my colleague, Devon Peña, of this idea of um, autonomy in the spaces of neoliberal neglect, right? Because, you know, Power isn't all-encompassing. Capitalism isn't all-encompassing, right? There's always going to be these grietas, these cracks, you know, where other possibilities can emerge. And I think Maclovio Rojas is a clear example of that, you know? I mean, they weren't allowed, they weren't supposed to survive, you know, but they have. And so in my book, I talk, I tried to tease out, well, why have they survived? You know, what is the tenacity that we can see here? Who is leading the movement? Um, and, and what can we learn from them basically? Yeah, I think for me, that's one of the, the aspects of your, your work that, that was so riveting to me and made it so hard for me to, to put it down once I started reading is because I, and obviously this is, this again, imbues, right. Middle-class privilege, first world kind of view, uh, in that, or, you know, however we want to use that. I mean, the global North, if you will, perspective of, I mean, imagining this community developing and standing up to, again, the nation state and multinational corporations, right? Um, they are caught in, in the midst of all of this uh, and, and they refuse to go away. I mean, to form, it, again, as you say, it wasn't the intention to form an autonomous community and an autonomous, autonomous movement, but that became the necessity, right, for survival, right, uh, in this area. Um, and, and that for me, I mean, I was just, I, I sat down with my wife. I'm like, imagine like, how do you even run a community? Like how, do, without government support, like you need water, you need electricity, you need, tra- you need schools, you need, there's all these things you need and you're in, you know, the, the nation state's way. So they're ignoring you. Right. And you're in corporations ways. And, and so they're sickened bodyguards and private security on you. Uh, and at the same time, these people are building community and, and they have to live and thrive. So tell us, you know, how do they organize? Tell us about these um, incredible women. I mean, there's 10 women essentially that you, that are the basis of a lot of your research. There's a lot more to that, but, but just tell get us a more of an inside look into uh, these people and, and how they are doing this. Oh yeah. No, they, I, I love that you're, you're, you're talking about this with your family because that's exactly what I hope happens, right? So we can, you know, imagine the unimaginable, right? Mm-hmm. Um as a way to break free from these confines that we think we have to follow, right? Um, uh-huh. So uh, I want to start by acknowledging Hortensia Hernandez. Um, Hortensia Hernandez was elected as the leader of the community for the last 30 years. I mean, she started really, uh, she was one of the original family members because her fa- father was one of the original founders of the community. And she was in her late teens. And then, you know, she just has, you know, she just 
naturally had this, you know, sort of leadership qualities about her and began to really like work with the community and with other original leaders like Ruben Garcia, Artemio Osuna. But at the end of the day, you know, Hortensia just sort of like was the one to, to stick it out, right? And to just not give up and, and keep moving forward. Um, and I want to acknowledge her because we just recently lost Hortensia. She um, had a short battle with cancer um, just, just, just this year. Um, and it's been bittersweet for me, honestly, because I've known Hortensia for 18 years. Um, she was brilliant, generous, a convicted human being um, who gave her life to this movement for social justice and this and for her community. And, um, and to see that we finally have, you know, this book coming out and she was so excited. I showed her the cover of the book in March and, um, she was just like, you know, in fact, um, can I read what she sent to me when she saw the cover of the book? Would that be okay? Oh yeah, please, please do. So she saw the cover. So she's the the image on the cover of the book. And this image is from a mural um, that put some of those transnational support networks. Um, one of them is Bautaf, which is the Border Arts Workshop Taller de Arte Fronterizo. So they've come in and, and done oral histories and made murals across the community um, and really brought to life, you know, the spirit of the community through this work. So this the cover of the book is of Hortensia Hernandez on a mural. Um, and, uh, and, and it's funny cause the press sent me two different versions. One it, what was of the entrance of the community. And there's an image in the book where it's like this big MR that was made again by another artist. Um, or, and that one was like a really like, be- I mean, it's sort of like exemplified neoliberal neglect. Right. Um, and, but, and it was a really beautiful cover. And then the other one was this one. And I sort of debated, you know, do, do I, you know, because I'm talking about liberation and autonomy and you see Hortensia on the cover behind bars and, you know, what does that signify? And what am I, anyway, so there's a lot of thought into it, but at the end of the day, you know, I really wanted to demonstrate and ground um, the women as essential. And we even flipped the title because the, the original title was Autonomy in the Spaces of Neoliberal Neglect, Border Women and the Community of Maclovia Rojas. And so we flipped it put this, you know, put this cover on. And now it's like, I can't imagine it as anything different, of course. But anyway, so when, so, so back in March of this year, when I sent the cover as just to see what she thought, you know, cause I've been in constant dialogue and that's, you know, something that maybe I can touch on in a bit and, and thinking about how we do, you know, research as, as scholars. Um, but for me, it's been, you know, just constantly being grounded and connected to the community. I mean, there's been lapses, which I talk about as, as well. Um, but so I sent it to her to see, you know, you know, Kipian says, what do you think? You know, and um, this is what she wrote to me. She says, you stirred my heart. It was sad, bitter, because for years I was persecuted by police and politicians without being a criminal. My crime was to seek a dignified life, education, health, sport, but it was worth it. Today, more than 12,000 inhabitants, that's where I made my error earlier, have been have benefited. And I am happy that my compañeros and I came out almost triumphant as we await the titles of our property. And thank you, Michelle, for you were part of our marginalized community and you supported us to get ahead. We love you very much. And this cover moved me, but it also made me reflect and think with satisfaction 
that it was worth it. And that's the last email. Oh, I that's got beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the last email I got from her. Uh. Um, because then she was diagnosed in May and, uh, I FaceTimed one time with her in August and she passed away August 10th of 2021. So really un homenaje a Hortensia, an honor that I got to, I get to tell her story and also just to reflect on the deep loss that it, that it is that she is no longer here. Uh, but she knew it was coming, you know, and, and that for me, um, feels very satisfying that she knew it was coming. And I got my first copy, like the first copy that I saw of my book was 20 days after she passed away. And so, uh. yeah. So like I said, it's bittersweet, but just really an honor that I get to share her, you know, her journey that is, was always co- a collective one, right? She never saw herself as being separate, but but clearly she was part of the, the inspiration for the other residents. Um, and that is, I think, noted in the book as well. In talking with other residents and other women leaders, um, they always would go back to Hortensia. I mean, she inspires us, right? And But it's something that, you know, this movement wouldn't exist without, you know, these notions of commitment, of unity, of seeing themselves in each other. One of the women once said, you know, you know, we are all branches of the same tree, you know, and we are, and that's, this is how we like, we support each other, we feed ourselves and we keep growing together as being a part of the same tree, you know? Um, and one of the women one time said to me, um, you know, she said, uh, somos puras mujeres porque a los hombres se les caen los pantalones. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I loved that. Right yeah, at the beginning of the book. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, if I, if, so if I translate that, it says we are only women because men are not as courageous. Right. And so really, you know, when you talk about Maclovia Rojas, it's impossible not to talk about the women that are leading the mo- movement. And it's not because they came to Maclovia Rojas, as, as you mentioned, you know, with these political ideals, with like, we're going to commit, we're going to create a commune or, you know, I'm a Marxist and I don't, and I want to, you know, operate in this way and da, 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 or I'm a feminist and I want to do this because of this, you know, because of these ideologies. No, it's, an, it's, they were f- trying to find a place to, to raise their families and to, um, you know, and to find, you know, a place in which they could belong to. And, and yet in that, in doing so, they were sort of forced to create for themselves what the state would not and then formed a political ideology, right? Which then, which I think was is most interesting, um, is that, you know, in doing for themselves, they realized that the U.S., uh, um, and I'm sorry, that the multinational corporations really had an effect on on their everyday lives. So they, they could see it. They lived it. You know, there was no need for an acute political analysis it, it was like, we know that Hyundai is like literally bulldozing us out and we could see that. We know that the state is persecuting us because they're codifying into law um, that it's illegal to lead a social movement, right? Um, and so I think that um, for the residents, you know, they, they sort of acquire this political ideology and then that shapes how they interact in their homes, right? They start to disrupt even the the oppressive structures that they find themselves living in within their homes, right? Whether it be because of domestic violence or patriarchy, 
Um, they're like, wait a minute, I'm fighting, you know, these corporations, I'm fighting the state, I'm not going to come home and then be subjugated by you, homie. <laughs> and so they fight back even then, right? And so um, it's, it's, it's both beautiful and exhausting, right? The, the lives that they have lived, but, um, but it's, 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 it's such, it's such a dynamic journey that they've been on um, because of the simple need to find a place to call home. Yes, I, you wonderfully, you know, bring us into that space and help us to understand the multiple forms of violence um, that that these women face, that the community face. I mean, the community externally, we've talked about that violence from the nation state, from uh, multinational corporations. Also, there's at times right competition and violence between neighboring communities. Right, that are um, that have received that government recognition um, and and or title to land and are trying to expand uh, into the community uh, of Maclovia Rojas. There's, and then there's also, as you mentioned, there's within the community, within homes, um, many of these women face uh, domestic violence. Um, and um, can you give us some insight into what? What about this space? You know, what about the borderlands? And it, it, it makes this kind of, I don't know if unique's not the right word entirely, um, but more about, you know, the conditions that these women are, are facing that is unique to this space, right? Where they are receiving, they're, they're encountering these different forms of violence from all different angles, uh, right? That is, again, creating la necessidad, right, for them to, uh, become activists. And that's, that's for me, is the epitome of grassroots, right? It's, it's not an ideology um, that is driving them into this community, right? Again, it is the necessity and, and we're here. Okay. And we, we, now we really, we have this shared subjectivity, right? And, and experience and, and what are we going to do about it? And that is the incredibly empowering part of this, right? But uh, a bit more about, uh, I guess, uh, you know, about the, the space that, and, and that is creating this shared subjectivity that is bringing the women together and then that's leading to that imaginative, that kind of imaginative creative uh, moment for them to create the space that they want to see and yeah. want to live in. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think there comes a, you know, there's a, there's a scholar um, who talks about la chispa, like that, that kind of like makes like the spark that kind of makes people organize. Like finally you're just like, wait a minute, you know, it's like, and then, and after that cheese spot is lit, you know, you, you, there's no going back, you know? Um, and I think for um, the residents of Maclovia Rojas, it's, they fought so hard. There's no going back, you know? Um, and even when, you know, there are new solicitors to like, to, to, to land plots, you know, getting plots of land in the community, um, they come to like a little meeting and they, they talk about, um, you know, what it would be like to, to live in the community. And, but there's, it's always very clear. Like if you're coming here and we are a community in Lucha, we are fighting for these things, you know, like, you know, you have to know that right away, like you're, you're coming to be formed part of something bigger. It's not just, um, you're going to, you know, buy a home and then like not talk to your neighbors or, you know, live in isolation. So, uh, so, but I think, you know, many of the of the community members still have to work in the maquiladoras. Now, a maquiladora worker makes not even five dollars, and it's not an hour, but it's a day. A gallon of milk in Me in Tijuana costs at least three dollars. You know, um, 
Is that right? Let's reiterate, right, that this is like five miles, right, just a few miles away from an international boundary, right, and from, you know, San Isidro and broader San Diego, right? I mean, that's just that disparity disparity, uh, Mm -hmm. is is shaking. Um, Absolutely. Yes. And so... So it's these conditions in which people, you know, tienen que inventar, tienen que, you know, they have to figure out a way um, to take care of their families and to take care of themselves and to form community and to think beyond, you know, um, the options that have been presented to them, you know. And so, uh, so, so I think that's what's very unique about the the border region, right? Is that you you have the arrival of migrants from different regions, and it's going to be very different. I mean, I haven't actually been back to the community since 2016, and we know that since 2016, things radically shifted. It was the summer of 2016, which was the last time I was there. And we know that, you know, nationally, internationally, things have shifted. Um, The border region has shifted. And so I didn't get to see the dynamics of, you know, the increase of, um, you know, Haitian migrants along the border. Um, And and when I was in Maclovio Rojas, um, when I looked at all the intake records, there was nobody who who said that they were from Central America. That doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they weren't there um, because we know that the Mexican state can also be really oppressive towards Central American and other migrant. Um, but it, so my point is, though, is that, you know, it's the confluence of all these things that are, you know, happening, forced migration, you know, inequities, um, you know, disposability in the in the border factories, um, state repression, global policies that you know um, allow for the free passage of of capital, but not people. Um, in which then you know, you know, families need to find a way to to, to respond to that. You know, and they find and finding Maclever Rojas, I think, is it becomes like a haven. You know, and they're not able to do all. I mean, you have to know that they have. You know, the early organizers and the leaders had such a vision. You know, they wanted to build not just schools, elementary schools, which they did. Um, they wanted to bring a, build a university, you know. Um, they wanted to They have a Casa de la Mujer, a women's center, you know, to support women. They had a child care center to support the women who work in the maquilas. But what they tell me constantly is like, let us do what we want to do. But instead, we're being constantly attacked. You know, if we are allowed to, 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 you know, finish the projects that we, you know, aspire to do, you know, what would it look like then? You know, I mean, and so um, I think that there is something here that inspires this transnational support. So this is the other unique part about the region, right? Is that um, because of the proximity to the U.S., you have a lot, especially in the '90s and the early 2000s, you had a lot of, you know, um, uh, maybe activists, students, teachers that wanted to go and learn about Maclovia. I mean, I was there. Like people came from literally all over the world. It's Italy, you know, like Europe, um, other parts of Mexico the u.s and you had a lot of you know support coming in from the u.s because it was accessible right and so um people could come in and do and you know one of the main like um sort of uh uh oh my god materials that are used for homes in the region or in the community are discarded garage doors that you find in the u.s right and so talk about like 
you know, recycling. And <laughs> I mean, it's like we, you know, this community has always been thinking about how to reuse uh, materials um, because they don't find anything that is disposable. They'll use it, right? And so garage door- Can you talk about the, not to cut you off, just uh, we're running a little short, but I really want to get to um, just stay on this, but how do they, again, how do they organize, how is the community organized to, to obtain these materials, right? And to repurpose them and to, um, you know, can you talk like the committee structure that they have and the different way leadership functions and particip- participatory democracy. Can you, while you're talking about that, can you just segue into yeah, that a little bit? Yeah, so they use these doors as a way to, you know, create these homes, like these little four-sided mm-hmm. homes. Um, and this is coming from the interaction with U.S.-based activists, really. That's that's how they are able to do it, you know? And so uh, okay. if otherwise, I don't think that it would happen. And you have a lot of U.S. church groups even coming over into Maclevitrofas and building homes and helping them, you know, sort of create um, their homes. This was years. So, I mean, it wasn't, it, it was the residents and, and those initial organizers that created the community. And then right. over time, as people started learning about the community, they, they were inspired by it and came to, you know, work and support the movement. Now, Maclevitrofas itself is, you know, they have, um, an internal structure where they have, you know, like a, a president, a vice president, you know, sort of this like central organizing committee. And then within each, so they have like five neighborhoods, I guess you would call them sections mm-hmm. in Maclevio has itself. And in those five sections, then they have what I would call like neighborhood organizing committees, right? And so that then reach out and branch out into their, re- you know, into their own neighborhoods. And so everything is super, um, is through consensus, participatory organizing. The ideas might come from leadership, but they also can come from the residents. And then they discuss them in, in their, you know, asambleas, right? Asambleas is really becomes the place in which, you know, they, the exchange of ideas, the decision to go protest at, you know, the Department of Water and Power, the decision to, you know, do a, um, a massive protest and march through the desert to Mexicali to the governor's office to tell them that, you know, we need to make sure that you are listening to our needs. Um, and, and so that's how, you know, and so how, that's how the community is structured really. Um, and then there's a main organizing center, the Aguascalientes, borrowing from the tradition of the Zapatistas. That's the central, you know, place where people come for questions uh, ideas, meetings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. I don't know. I know we're out of time. <laughs> no, no, that's perfect. We got, we got a few more minutes. Um, <clears throat> and I, I'm sorry to, <laughs> to interject. Um, cause this is, I could talk to you all day about this and, and um, I'm thinking of, you know, what is, uh, right. So this is a community, as you mentioned, you know, that is still in struggle and, and they, again, didn't begin, <clears throat> excuse me, it didn't begin that way, but that's what it's become. And again, as they have these meetings and, and new people are, are thinking about coming to this community, it's what in, is instilled in newcomers and potentially new residents. What, <clears throat> and I know you've, you haven't been, you've been away for a few years, but what is the, you know, future uh, for, I think both this community but I, I think communities like it. Um, so what's the future for them? And then what they're doing, I'll just have a, just a two-part question, uh, is what does that teach us, right? What are, You mentioned the possibilities, like the imagination that it, you know, this is a learning moment for all of us and people are coming from around the world, right, to, uh, you know, to learn from them, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So what is the future of Maclovio Rojas? Is that- the future of Maclovio Rojas and then and the lessons for us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, Maclovio Rojas isn't going anywhere, you know, and they, whether they have their titles to the land, this is their home. They're not going to go anywhere and they're going to continue to fight for what they, um, for, for what they've created. Right. Um, and I think in some ways the state has backed off, um, other pressing needs have come forward, you know, the state of migration and, uh, migrants in the region. But I mean, Maclovio Rojas is an example of what could happen actually if other migrants organize and create for themselves what, what both, you know, places, you know, the both, again, the state and, and these like international um, conventions around asylum and migration, you know, if, if, if their needs are, aren't being met, like what can they do for themselves? And it could, it could be something like that. Right. But I don't know that right now, because the community has been in a vulnerable state with Mortensia's illness. Um, I don't know that they're making those connections, but I think that would be super dynamic to think about how to um, show more recent migrants the possibilities here, you know, and it's happening in other ways. I mean, and we know that and that's not, not necessarily my research, but I, I do want to acknowledge that I, I know of other ways in which, you know, shelters and migrant communities and Haitian immigrants are creating a, a new city and especially in Tijuana. Um, the lessons I think of Maclovio Rojas um, are, you know, when I, when I think about, you know, this notion of prefigurative politics, sometimes we think, well, we got to transform the world and we have to change this. For me, what I'm trying to highlight is, well, what can we do now to create the world that we want? Um, and I think Maclovio Rojas is a, is a prominent example of this. They didn't wait you know, to be granted the lands. They didn't wait for the state to build a school. They didn't wait for, um, uh, you know, the the state to bring in a health care. So they, they did it for themselves. Now, some would argue that this is exactly what the neoliberal state wants them to do. Like, do it for yourself. We're not going to support you, you know? And so there's this tension between that. But what I'm arguing is that um, the residents are drawing from a collectivist um, you know, formation that's that's not this individual do-it-yourself, oh well. Um, and instead I see this as like the, the openings that I mentioned earlier, um, the openings that are possible because we recognize that power and capital aren't all-encompassing and we can figure out the ways in which we can make las grietas or the cracks come together in bigger ways. And so that for me is an important idea to hold on to, right? What are the, and it's not about, taking power over, but it's about being in community and in relation to one another and thinking about how we redefine power and create for ourselves um, a way of life that is dignified, right? Um, And that uh, builds on our long histories of, um, of community formation, of collectivist resistance, of creation, um, of transformation, uh, that is rooted, you know, um, in different cultural and social ecologies of our of our own, you know, um, existence, basically. Well, thank you, uh, Michelle, for sharing that and for you know sharing this wonderful, this beautiful book with us. Um, uh, it's I can only imagine. We've talked a little bit, you know, off air, just how um, 
I think in some ways, I'm not sure if fulfilling is the right word. I just, I know what it's like to write about uh, a community and to study a community for so long and, and know that their story and their struggle deserves to be heard and that there's lessons in there for all of us. And this is exactly what, what you've given us. Um, so thank you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. And it just I'll just say this one last thing, I, you know, is that I talk a, a bit in the book, too, about methodology. And I just want to end by saying that I want I hope that this book can convey both an intellectual project, but also a political commitment, you know, one of relationality, reciprocity, and and really in trying to model something that's not seen as extractivist research, right? And so mm-hmm. relationality and how I write and, and write with the community. So uh, DJ, thank you. Thank you for this time. I really, really appreciate your work. <laughs>